0: you turn with me this morning before we come to the Lord's table to a portion I've been discussing with you over in the Psalms, and the Psalms especially are such a great revelation to us of our own problems, for that's really, if I can say this, the Psalms are a recital of the experiences of godly men and uh, their ultimate dependence upon God. In other words, uh, of all the scriptures, there is nothing quite like the Psalms. The Psalms are really not meant for unbelievers. You recognize that, although more unbelievers read the Psalms than any other book. people who know nothing about Jesus Christ can quote the 23rd Psalm. And I've heard people know whole Psalms and be able to quote them who know nothing about Jesus. But to the child of God who really loves Christ, the Psalms become living because they are dealing with experiences, the experiences of men and the honesty with which these men are able to see themselves. That's very important. How honest are we about ourselves? And it amazes us when we read how these men look at themselves. The only other one, if I might say this, in the New Testament now, who looks at himself as the psalmist looked at himself is Paul. For you will find in Romans 7, for instance, that Paul tears himself to shreds as a saved man. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? See, he recognizes this body which he's carrying around as a body of death. God has chosen in his great grace and wisdom to put the Holy Spirit into this This body, which is such a poor vehicle for the Spirit of God, it's not a good vehicle, never will be. Paul calls it a vile body. The body of our humiliation, that's what he calls it. It's a body that's subject to death and the dying processes. Subject to decay. The older you get, the more you recognize the decay one organ at a time begins to go pains come the shocking thing about us all is that somehow we we don't seem to grasp this the psalmist did grasp it quite well we don't seem to grasp that this happens to all mankind but we as christians when these things happen to us is to be entirely different We're to understand that all men die. It's no secret to us. Why, if I live another eight years, I will have outstripped all the statistics in the United States for the length of men's lives. If you live to your three score and ten years, it's uh, tremendous. And yet I hear Christians who are the first little illness comes, and they're ready to cry out, Why is God doing this to me? Well, now that's a kind of a silly statement. It is appointed unto men once to die, and unless the Lord Jesus returns. To some it's young, to some it's older, but death comes. And so this psalmist is particularly honest about all these things. He doesn't try to cover anything up. He, he tells the truth about himself. And because of that, we can see ourselves so often in the Psalms. We can read them, and as Christians now, born again, the Psalms become living to us. Spurgeon, the greatest, called one of the greatest, or the greatest preacher of all time. His great treatise is on the Psalms, you see. Volume after volume upon the Psalms he preached. But in that, he preached Christ and the experiences of men of God so that the church could see these tremendous experiences and from it learn so much, but we learn so little. Oh, it's so sad to say. It seems that every generation has to go through the same things. Isn't that too bad? Although Paul says that these things were written for you so that you should not fall into the same sins that these people fell into, so that you might recognize this and you might learn from their experiences so that you don't have to go through the same thing and the same heartaches and the same burdens. And yet, beloved, my study as I talk with people, are going through exactly the same things that the Scriptures continually warn about and tell us we should be very careful not to get involved in lest we fall into the same condition that these men fell into. Isn't this tragic? Tragic. Now, the psalmist in the the portion that I've been talking to you from the 119th Psalm, if you turn there from the 65th to the 72nd verses is dealing with a problem of going astray. And as I've said to you, this going astray is not in what we would call the most heinous of sins, for we're liable to look at certain sins and say, this is the scarlet sin, or this is the sin that we have to avoid. And I hate to say it, but Christians are so duped by Satan that they think as long as they don't commit adultery and don't steal and don't murder, they've made it. And this is about the saddest thing that I can contemplate in my mind as a Christian because most of the dealings of God, while he deals with fornication and adultery and all of these sex ends, sex has become such a tremendous word. And, beloved, I believe that God has more to say to our hearts about that than anything else. He has sanctified it gloriously. And if young people were to follow God's laws, God's thoughts concerning sex, their lives would be things of beauty, and that one that they are joined together with for life, their joy would be great in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to assure you that there's no libertinism allowed in the Scriptures concerning sex. Sex is the most dignified gift that God ever gave to man, to give man this power of creation. God the Creator gives to man the power of creation and has made it the most dignified of all the things. And yet I hear Christians with double-tongued stories involving sex. There's no jokes in sex. There's purity, and there's holiness, and there's beauty. We def- we defile it, and we bring it before God in an obnoxious state. He who so dignified man's body and woman's body, making them so divinely wonderful for one divine holy purpose to praise him and then to bring forth children that he might find a family for himself. Not that we might merely create children, bring children into the world, but that God would finally have a glorious family for himself. Is that why you look at your children? Do you look at them as your personal possession? Or do you look at them As those whom God has given you to bring them into the family of God and then for each person each young person to realize this is God's desire for me and so beloved while sex has such an important part it is a holy part of the Christian life and we've seen it defiled and we find all of the worldly members getting into a council and deciding that pornography is fine And it never affects anybody. Don't you fool yourself. I care not if you're Christian or no. I care not if you're born again. It makes not one bit of difference. You look at pornography and you defile yourself. But, beloved, the scriptures start from a different premise. They start in an area that we would not likely think of as straying away. And that area is worldliness. Now, notice as I read this portion, and you'll see what I mean. 65th verse. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. Now, as I said to you, it's very important that you understand here These verses will look as though they contradict each other because of our thinking. We allow our carnal minds to think, how does God do good to his children? By making them happy and successful. This was the Jewish attitude. The Jewish attitude was always this, that if they had money and possessions, This was the blessing of Abraham. God made Abraham rich. The servants in his household were able to defeat an army. And the thought was that as long as God gives us money and possessions, you remember that God had said to Israel, Thou shalt be the merchants of the earth. and that they would be the ones, he said, you will control the money bags of the earth. But you'll be obnoxious to me. You'll be a stench unto me because you've allowed worldliness to take possession of your soul. And so the great snare of the devil is not so much the dragging us into the deeper sins as to drag us into the first sin, worldliness. For once he gets the Christian born again, beginning to get involved with the world, he can then get him back into the more heinous sins of adulteries and fornications and all the rest. But he won't stop. He'll start getting you a little more into the world, into the world, and then you'll begin to let down the bars slowly, 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 and you'll hardly see them dropping. But little by little, you're going deeper and deeper and further and further away until finally you find yourself involved in all kinds of sin. What does the scripture say? The love of money is the root of how much evil? The more you get, the more likely you are to drift. James says riches are a snare. And those that have attained them have pierced themselves through with many sorrow. And so it's worldliness. Now notice what he does. Thou hast dealt wealth with thy servant, Lord, according unto thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. I'm going to read the psalm, then I'll go back. For I have believed thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. He'll tell us in a few verses how he went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me. But I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Notice now, he talks of these people. Their heart is as fat as grease but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Now notice, the law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Ah, you see what it is, worldliness. He got his eyes on the world and people. And the fact that here he was, you can read psalm after psalm on this. Here he was, born again, if I can use it in the Christian sphere now. The Old Testament saint didn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit walked with him day by day. And here he was, walking in the world and looking around him, just as you or I might look around us, you know. You look at the world outside. And we have to admit that the world outside is a hundred, a thousand times more affluent than the church of Jesus Christ. This is truth. We don't have to deny this truth. Let's let's admit it. They've got more money. They've got more of everything than you and I will ever have. Why, the world outside pays more for its dog food and chewing gum than all the churches and all the earth in their budgets for one year. So the world outside is affluent, and if you get your eyes on the world and begin to say, well, look at me, boy, I don't know, here I serve Christ, I do my best in every way to serve the Lord, I tithe, I serve Him, I go on visitation, I come to prayer meeting, but boy, I've really had it rough. It's been really tough on my family. Why, look at my neighbors. Why, they curse, they swear, they drink. Every a wild time. They seem to have plenty. Never seem to have the burdens I have. Their heart's as fat as grease. They've got it. And then God has to deal with them. They go to God with this kind of a thing, you know, with this kind of a complaint in the heart. Go to God and say, why, look at the world. Lord, why don't you just strike them down? Why don't you just judge them? Lord, it seems to me that I'm taking all the chastening, and they, why, they seem to have a rosy road, and nothing seems to bother them. See how the psalmist speaks about himself. He says, why, I went astray. I began to think of the world and all that it possessed. And my mind got so confused on this thing, as I thought of it, that I made my thinking very isolated. Now, may I say this? There's no isolated truth. What I said before concerning the world is an absolute truth. They have more than we have. They have more than the church has. They can spend enough money on dog food and chewing gum and these things than all the churches in all the earth spend on their missionary efforts to win souls for Jesus Christ. But this is not an isolated truth. When you have a truth of this character, then as a Christian, you must put the other truth beside it. And unless you do this, This is where the Christian church fails tremendously. It takes an isolated truth of this character. And the devil allows it to dwell in our minds. And before we know it, we begin to drift away. And Paul in Hebrews says, Be careful that you let not these things slip and drift away which God has spoken to your hearts. We begin to drift away from God because we place a poor faith a false judgment upon the whole situation because we forget that Isaiah tells us that in many places God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways. We're to remember that God's thoughts are above our thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth. And the minute we place one truth here and say, look at the world and all of its prosperity and all of its money and all that it possesses. And then God says, now, wait a minute. I want you to put the other truth on the other side. And that truth is this. And I'm now quoting from Psalm 20 and Psalm 73. And here's what the psalmist said. He says, concerning the same problem, because it was worldliness again, he says, and I had not been able to understand this unless I went into the sanctuary of God. But I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I saw their end. And that's the other truth. You'd have put the two truths together. World has it. But then he saw. Their end. Let me read it to you, all right? I'll turn over first to Psalm 73. Here's what he says, beginning with the 12th verse Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world, they increase in their riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. 16th verse, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Try to understand it, he says, I just couldn't understand it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I what? Their end. Now notice what he says. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terror. Oh, he went into the sanctuary of God. Now, I I want to say this very frankly. There'd be a lot of sanctuaries of God where you could go in this morning and you wouldn't hear a thing that would do anything for your soul at all. You wouldn't understand one iota of this sort of a message. He says, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I, what, understood their end. So whenever you take that truth that the world's got the money and got the gold and all the rest, I would remind you that there's the truth that must be placed beside it. Their end is destruction and desolation and terror. What a terrible comparison. Notice how the psalmist says, thou didst chastise me, and then he follows it. You know, it's hard to grasp it unless you see what he's saying. He says, I went astray until I was afflicted. Thou art so good to me. Now, those two things don't seem to go together, do they, huh? Did you ever hear a child say that? You know, when you spank them? Turn around and say, oh, daddy, you're so good to me. And yet everyone recognizes that chastening has a purpose. Hebrews 12, now, no chastening for the moment seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those that are exercised thereby. God chastens. God brings us low, and he brings us down and down and down. And you know the inclination of the human heart and the carnal mind is this. When we are afflicted in this way, and we have these thoughts in our heart, look at the world, and listen, Christian, Mark my words, there's hardly one of us that at some time in our life hasn't said this to ourselves. That's why I say the psalmist knows what he's talking about. We've looked at other people and we begin to say, but gee, here we are, Christians, and look at us. Poor us, poor you. When the very riches of Christ and the treasury of heaven is at your disposal When eternal life and a glorified body and no more pain or sorrow or sickness or tears or crying are your portion for eternity, and you say, poor me. The Lord said, in this world you shall have tribulation, right? But be of good cheer. That doesn't seem to match, does it, huh? Be of good cheer. You're liable to say, in this world we have tribulation. Aren't we miserable? The Lord says, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Are you? We think that we, we're inclined to right away think, I, I want to isolate myself. One of the most terrible things is that when we get our eyes on the world and worldliness and, and we, we, we flip the, the world over and we decide that we're going to go the world's way, Christians have done this time and again. This is what Lot did. Lot Lot looked the wrong way. Abraham sought that which was God's. Lot went the other way. It doesn't tell you that Lot wasn't saved. It doesn't tell you, does it? Here are two saved men, but one picks the wrong road and the other picks the right one. The other one, Abraham says, you give me what God wants for me. And Lot looked out on the plain, and he says, that's the place you'll make the dough. I'm going that way. And he went that way, and he suffered with his children and his family and everything else. And the tragedy of it is when that this happens to our heart and we do not reason it out. You see in that second verse, the 66th verse, where he says, Lord, how I, I love thy law. But he says, give me understanding and knowledge. The mere fact that I know these things isn't the thing that's going to make it understandable to me. I have to know. Give me perception. Help me to be able to see things as they are. Help me, Lord, when any worldly thought comes into my mind or some desire for some sinful thing, something that may crush my life to see the end of it. Oh, listen, beloved, pray for perception. Will you do that for me? Pray for perception of your whole life. Sit down and reason. Wherever we are tempted of the devil or tempted of your own heart to indulge in some deep sin, some defiling thing, I want you to think of the end of that thing. I want to tell you, the end is desolation and despair. And you may think that you can taste of the world and you can taste of illicit things and unholy things and unclean things and get away with it. Don't you fool yourself. It ends in desolation and despair. And if you could see the end thereof, you'd never touch it. The inclination of the heart is to become isolated. When this thing happens to us and we begin to get worldly and the worldliness leads into all the other sins for the love of money is the root of all evil because the more money we get, the more things we can buy and possess and we can purchase sin through the worldliness of our hearts. We can purchase those things that take our mind off Christ. We can surround ourselves with all the beauty and the houses and the possessions and the lands and all the rest. And it takes so much time to operate and to keep after your riches that you have little time left for God. I feel sorry for the man who's got so much money that he's got to spend all his time in figuring out his accounts and his stocks and his bonds. God deliver that man. It would be better that all of his money be taken away and that he come to the sanctuary of God and there find the truth of God. When I went into the sanctuary, I saw their end and I want no part of it. Let them count their monies and all their possessions and all that they have and all their worldliness and just give me Christ. We're inclined to isolate ourselves. You know, one of the first things the devil does when that begins to creep into your life, the devil tries to keep you from the sanctuary of God. That's what he do. That's number one. He'll keep you away from the sanctuary of God, or got to, he'll keep you away from the fellowship of believers. Because it's just going to hurt you. That's all. To be with believers, this is the devil's work. Isolate the man. Keep him away from that kind of a sanctuary that will bless his heart and talk to him about the end of those people that is destruction and desolation and despair. Do you recognize that the world all around us, with all the glorious and beautiful homes that we speak of, the 40 and the 50 and the 60 and the 70 and the $80,000 homes, most of them are on the road to destruction and hell and desolation. And when I talk of visitation, we're visiting homes just like these that we might seek to lead people to Jesus Christ and to get a proper perception. Give me understanding and knowledge, Lord. Give me the power of perception. We're liable to isolate ourselves. We try to get apart from everybody. But I want to tell you something. Coming into the sanctuary of God with your heart wide open can bless your hearts tremendously. Do you know I myself... There's a great joy when I have when I walk in that door in the morning and walk into the sanctuary of God. I've marched up and down this aisle with no one in here just praying out loud. I know the bricks aren't holy. I know the building isn't particularly holy, but the minute I stepped into this room the Holy Spirit came in with me. Just going into the sanctuary of God is a blessing. And then it's more of a blessing when you come in, beloved, and you see other people around you, you know? Isn't it great to know that there's so many? Aren't you thrilled? Look at it. Tremendous, wonderful. Nearly every Sunday we run between 450 and 500 people here in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. I would it with the same Sunday night in prayer meeting. It would be tremendous. But seeing others around you, you're not isolated, you're not alone. And number three, to know that the people in the sanctuary with you have the same kind of problems. You see? There's something about that, isn't there? Huh? Knowing that you're with people who have the same kind of problems. They have the same thoughts in their hearts sometimes. And yet, if they come into the sanctuary of God and they listen to the Word of God to know that their hearts are fed and they see the great snare of worldliness. He says their hearts were as fat as grease. Lord! I could hardly conceive of it. Let me just read to you a little portion of that 73rd Psalm again because it gives you a pretty good idea. Third verse. Well, the second verse says, For my, me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death. Why, these people even die and don't seem to be fearful of death. You haven't met people like that, haven't you? Force, sheer intestinal fortitude. I meet, met them in the hospital. No fear of death. Don't believe in God. Believe when you're dead, you're dead. And he says there's no bands in their death. Their strength is firm, even when they die. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain, and violence covers them as a garment. And their eyes stand out with fatness. Fat as grease. They have more than heart could wish. They're corrupt and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. He keeps going down and down and down. And then he says, And Lord, forgive me, I had not understood unless I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Well, aren't right, you understanding their end this morning? Desolation, despair, and terror. Take your choice. Take your choice. So you have a little less money on earth, all right? Can I ask a question? Is anybody hungry this morning? The potato that you have in your plate this afternoon is just as good as the potato the millionaire will eat. The vegetable that you have in your plate this afternoon is just as good as the vegetable the millionaire will eat. Now, his meat might be a little bit of I don't know. But I want to assure you that the same nourishment is there for the children of God and also him. Some of the millionaires would gladly trade places with you for the simple blessings of God to be able to eat what they like to eat. But they've been so worried about their money all their lives, they can't eat. Then understood I their end. That's not the tragedy. Is anybody hungry here this morning? Then you tell the pastor, because nobody goes hungry in this church. There shouldn't be one child of God who's ever hungry. We may not be able to pay your mortgage payments and all the rest, as much as we'd love to do that. But no one should be hungry in the house of God beloved to know that here we are they face desolation despair destruction and terror and what do we face even so come quickly Lord Jesus <laughs> oh boy it's hard to compare this isn't it huh isn't it hard to compare it and yet do you know this is the great sinner that's why God says the the love of money is the root of how much evil say it again <laughs> it's God's word you see it's God's word Oh, beloved, let us remember this. Huh? Let us remember this. Take, never take an isolated truth, you know. You know how the Christians do that so often. I close with this because I think I've used it before, but I like it. There was a farmer who was a Christian, and the farmer planted his crops, and he made a statement to the other farmers at the Grange meeting, See, I still remember that word, Grange. I used to go up to my uncle's farm all the time. The Grange meeting. And when he met with the other farmers, they were all talking about the crops. And he said, well, brethren, he said, I've decided that I'm not doing any harvesting on Sunday. I'm serving the Lord. They all looked at him and they said, you have cracked in the head. If you don't work on Sunday, you're going to have less than any of us so anyway, they went through the whole season. He planted his crop, and the crop came up and planted, and October came. And they all met together, and they all had big smiles on their faces and looked sort of down at him. You know. and he just stood there, and then the time came for discussion. And one of them got up and said, uh, Brother so-and-so, we, we noticed that your crop is less than any one of us here, and you didn't work on Sunday. So he looked at them all and he said, brethren, let me say this. God's day of harvest and judgment is not in October. You men have your harvest. But when God has his harvest, I'll be amongst the wheat and you'll be amongst the tares. And so I choose to serve my Lord on the Lord's Day. How blessed, huh? How wonderful. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. It's so precious and so simple to our hearts. We're thankful that the Holy Spirit makes it clear. These are the realities of life. Lord, we feel so sick sometimes when we find people who pretend that they're always on the mountaintop, that they never have a doubt and never have a problem and never look at the world and never get envious. As the psalmist says here, my feet were almost slipped and I was envious at the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Lord, we recognize that all of Scripture tells us that this is truth, but that that is not to disturb us, that these thoughts might come into our hearts but to remember that the psalmist then places his thoughts properly beside the sanctuary of God and the end of all those who did not follow after God. That's all we have to look at. Take one look, and we'll fly into the arms of Jesus and say, O Lord, we thank Thee that we have found Thee as our Savior. And our Lord... And that you've given us eternal life that began right now. The resurrection life and the resurrection power. And that one day we're going to be translated. We're going to be conformed unto the image of Christ. And we're going to have a body fashioned like his. And oh Lord, all of these. It's desolation and despair and terror. Lord, deliver them from anything. All their riches, their wealth, that they might find Christ. Deliver them, Lord. And if Thou dost deliver them in their wealth, Lord, may they then say, All that I possess is Thine and not Mine. Father, touch our hearts this morning and help us always to place one truth beside another truth. For there is no isolated truth with God unless we place His Word beside everything else that is considered to be truth. Now bless us as we come to the table this morning and we'll thank thee for it in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. All right, let us turn to that portion that is given to us of the Lord concerning the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning at the 23rd verse. May I say we... We don't invite you to the table upon the basis of your being a Baptist. Lord, deliver us from such a menial thought. We invite you to the table if you have trusted in the blood of Christ to cleanse you from sin. This is the Lord's table. It's not a Baptist table. And it's for all the believers in Jesus Christ, true believers who've been born again of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. So, as you come this morning, that's all I ask, and it's a simple request. Don't partake unless you believe it can't do a thing for you but condemn you. You'll notice it says, If we eat unworthily, we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So, come if you have truly received Christ as your Savior. I have received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do, notice, in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament, notice, in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Notice that he had not yet been crucified when he did this. And so he's telling them as to be a remembrance of him. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show which is preach or remember the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord." In other words, if you come unbelieving, it can do nothing but condemn you. It puts you on the side of the crucifiers of Christ because you're taking that which you have no part of. And so he says, you merely condemn yourself, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Notice this, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by our Savior Jesus Christ, we are chastened of the Lord that we, isn't this wonderful, should not be condemned with the world. He treats you as children now, you see, just chastening. Have you been disobedient? Have you done something that you know is sinful? God hasn't cast you out. Otherwise, he'd be less than an earthly father. Why, if your own children were to do something that was sinful, do you cast them out or do you then think, they need more of my love and tenderness to bring them back to the family? This is an earthly family. If your earthly fathers know how to give you good gifts and to love you, how much more shall your heavenly father love them, you see? and know how to deal with you. And so he chastens us. It matters not how deep the sin may be. It can be the deepest and most vile sin that some child of God can get into. But I would remind you, he says, it will only be chastening, but you will not be judged with
1: the world.
0: What kind of judgment is the world? Judgment. Remember the psalmist, and when I thought to know this, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I knew their end. Their end is desolation and despair and terror. But ours is the chastening hand of God upon earth to chasten us so that when we see Jesus face to face, you're not going to go to purgatory when you die. The chastening is now so that when the child comes home to his father, he'll be in that position where God wants him to be. May the Lord lay these words upon our hearts. I'm going to call on our brother Bob Diekman and ask him to thank the Lord at this time
1: for the bread. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice to share together this portion of thy precious word, mm. giving forth the the Lord's Supper as Paul received it from the And Father, we're thankful for how it does speak to each of our hearts yes our father help us to look within and to judge our lives mm. father thy word says that we are at best unprofitable servants yes. and yet father we would serve thee mm. oh we love you lord jesus we, mm. we thank you for our salvation mm. thank you for how full and free it is yes. but father mm. we would be servants well pleasing not Thee. Mm. and so we ask that we might as we come to the table examine our hearts and our Father, if there be in us any defiling thing, any known sin, Father, help us even now to search it out. Yes. With the help of the Holy Spirit and to bring it before thee and confess it. Mm-hmm. We're thankful, Father, thy word says, if we confess our sin, mm-hmm. thou art faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse us. Thank you, Lord, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes. And so, our Father, we pray as blood-lord children that we might come unto thee now and rejoice to come to this table. Mm. Father, as we partake of the bread, may we remember that the Lord Jesus bare our sins in his own body. It was for each of us individually. And Father, help us to be truly thankful for this, the thrill of being saved and known, being the children of the mighty God who made it all, that he loves us each individually. So Father, bless us now as we partake of the bread. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: For as often as you do eat this bread, ye do remember the Lord's death until he comes again. Remember the words of Peter, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. Eat ye all of it and be ye thankful. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, This is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of your sins. Do this as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to call on our brother Ernie Debelius and ask him to thank the Lord at this time
2: for the cup. Our Father, we thank Thee once again for this table of remembrance that we can gather about, thanking Thee that it was because of Thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross and shed His precious blood for the remission of our sin. And we thank Thee this morning that we have life everlasting through faith and trust in Him. And we thank you that this table not only only reminds us of his death but of his coming again that one day he will come to receive us that he has already prepared a place in heaven for us as thy word tells us in John 14. And we're looking forward to the day now when Jesus shall come again to take his bride unto himself that where he is we may be also. And Father, we pray this morning that every heart here knows with the assurance in their own heart and soul that they have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, Mm -hmm. and that they have this hope prepared for them in heaven also, as Mm -hmm. each of us have who are trusting Christ as Savior this morning. Pray that thou bless us as we partake of this emblem, Mm -hmm. and bless each of our hearts this morning, we pray Mm -hmm. in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: For as oft as you do drink this cup, ye do remember the Lord's death until he comes again. Beloved, remember the words of Paul this morning. He hath by one offering made perfect forever them that are separated unto God. And the words of Peter. I should say, John, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Drink ye all of it and be ye thankful. Now, Father, we do thank Thee this morning for this glorious privilege we have as Thine own blood-bought children to sit at this Thy table and to sup with Thee. We look forward to a day, Lord, when the remembrance of Thy death will be swallowed up by Thy coming again, and we will see Thee face to face. We will ever remember that the blood of Christ cleansed us from sin, But oh, when we see thee face to face and when we have received the glorified bodies promised unto us in thy word, then, Father, death shall be swallowed up in victory. Oh, how blessed it is to know that these are the greatest facts of the universe, that by faith we have received them, And we know by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the inviolable truth that we shall be raised incorruptible to see our blessed Savior. Lord, we thank Thee. We pray that our lives might be pleasing unto Thee. We pray, Lord, that we'll never be deceived by some isolated truth, that we'll never look at the world and envy the foolish We remember how the psalmist put it, it seemed so difficult when he looked back at it and he said, I envied the foolish. Lord, help us to always have that truth of our end. And our ultimate end is glory. And to see Christ face to face. Oh Lord, make it our families. Please, Father, how we pray. That what we might possess as a father, as a mother might be the portion of our sons and our daughters. Lord, we don't want to be separated for eternity. And there are no other words to promise us eternity. And when we come to the grave, there's nothing else we want to know. But where shall we spend eternity? We're thankful for your word and its promises, Lord. Seal them to our hearts this morning. The blood of Christ has cleansed us from sin and made us fit to enter the heavenly portals and to dwell with thee forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, Father, touch us with thy love and fill us not only with love for thee, but love between husbands and wives and sons and daughters in our family.